Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello listeners, before we dive into today's episode, there are a few things we'd like to share. What you're about to hear is a recording of our podcast that originally took place on Twitter Spaces on Saturday. Now, due to the nature of the platform, there are a few moments where the audio quality isn't optimal. So we appreciate your understanding, but we think that such is the importance of the recording that we've tried to clean it up as much as possible. Now, initially, we'd planned to have our friend Yehuda Mirsky as one of our guests, but unfortunately, for technical reasons, he couldn't join the recording. However, we were fortunate to have another insightful voice from Israel, Adam Block from Efrat who graciously stepped in to share his perspectives. Throughout the episode, you'll also hear occasional questions and insights from Daniel Boardman, the senior correspondent for the National Telegraph in Canada. His contributions add more of a pushback to some of the points that Professor Ibrahim Haroub make. But that's his voice. Lastly, if you enjoy our content and uh, you want to support the Mid-Atlantic podcast, please take a moment to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback not only helps us to improve, but also elevates the podcast in the rankings, allowing us the opportunity for more listeners to discover us. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started with the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Mid-Atlantic. I am Royfield Brown, who is sat in a rather sunny Oakland in California. With the escalating conflict in Israel and Palestine, we decided to go back to our friends of the podcast, Yehuda Mirsky from Jerusalem, and Professor, who's a professor from Brandeis University and a former U.S. state 
department official who has written for The New York Times, The Economist, The Washington Post, and many other publications. Beside, we also have Dr. Ibrahim Haroub, who is from Hebron on the West Bank. He's a professor at Bethlehem University who specializes in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. This week has been tumultuous in the Middle East. Israel is gearing up for a potential invasion of Gaza, having mobilized its entire armored corps and called up 360,000 reservists. Amongst this tension, US officials are pressing Israel to delay its attack, hoping to negotiate the release of hostages held by Hamas. Tragically, a hospital was bombed, leading to over 500 casualties in Gaza. In the West Bank, Israeli forces have detained 120 Palestinians in areas ranging from Ramallah to Nablus. As the situation escalates, over a million Palestinians have evacuated their homes in Gaza, with a significant number now taking refuge in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Amongst this backdrop, the US President Joe Biden made a visit to Israel, signaling his support for the state and potentially aiming to broker a deal to assist the trapped Palestinian civilians. Dr. Haroum, welcome back to the show. It's been a trying week, whether you are Israeli or whether you are Palestinian. Specifically, how was President Biden's visit to Israel greeted by Palestinians? Uh, Yes, Mr. Brown. First, I'm glad to have a conversation about the conflicts and to tell the truth about such complicated crises. You asked me about the Biden visit to Israel, and I think as Palestinian, this is visit to support the Israeli side, not to support Palestinian. I think you should be objective when you come to Middle East and when you try to solve such a crisis, such a genocide against Palestinian people. So the U.S. administration is not fair about this crisis. President Biden said that there is going to be specifically an aid package for uh, the Palestinians. He is trying to broker um, aid to come into Gaza. Isn't President Biden and the US administration caught between their historic support for Israel, their ally, but also wanting to be there and actually to temper an overt Israeli response? A lot of the reports have actually said that the reason why Israel has not gone into Gaza is because America is tempering the Israelis. It's not about just support, about and it's about to stop this war, to stop this genocide against Palestinians. So, so I think this alliance between Israel and U.S. is, as you said, hysterical, and they they agreed just to just to make Palestinian people without their rights and just to to promote war against Palestinian peoples. So I think the, the international community should take action and should support the Palestinian people because as you heard that more than 3,500 Palestinians were killed in the last a few days of this war. And this is really war crime and this is genocide against Palestinians. Dr. Haroub, though, understand that the Israeli state needs to have an overt response to the Hamas outrage. You, un- you understand that. And also this week, President Mahmoud Abbas 
has said that not only does the Palestinian Authority represent the Palestinian people, but Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. How did that statement go down with people on the West Bank? Okay, first, we, we, we should differentiate between terrorism and the freedom fighter. And we should differentiate between war crime and uh, operations. So, so what freedom fighter is a person engaged in a resistant movement against what they believe to be oppressive or illegitimate government. I agree with you that Hamas doesn't represent Palestinian people, but when you check reality, you will find that ordinarily Palestinian people are killed on the ground and several families were evacuated from their homes. So where is this justice that you, you kill Palestinian people and you don't fight terrorism, as you say, as Israeli government says? So this is the point. The second point that I think this is a type of Israeli propaganda, example of Israeli propaganda, that this can be achieved by repeating lies until they become truth, by playing the victim role, by dehumanizing victims to justify the genocide against Palestinians, to spread lies in the first hours of the event, to make facts are unimportant to promote the narrative of the complex issues. Haroub, Dr. Haroub, I'm I'm just going to hand over to Piotr. Um, Yeah, sorry to interject your recording. I do just want to let you know that we have Adam. Uh, Dr. Ibrahim, I asked you, I thought it was somewhat of a, a simple question. Mahmoud Abbas very clearly said that Hamas does not speak for the Palestinian people. I thought that's going to be a, a, a yes and no answer that either yes, they do or, or, or no, they don't. Okay, as a, a political party, th- there was a, a democratic election, but as our president said that uh, Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinian people in their action, and I agree with him that sometimes we don't need conflict. We need negotiation and we need peace agreement. I agree with him, but this is reality and this is the Israeli action against Palestinian. This is a war crime against Palestinian. As I said, that this is a real genocide and uh, it's about terrorism, the definition of terrorism, how you define terrorist action and how you define freedom f- f- fighter. Okay, Dr. Harub. Adam, welcome to the stage. Two weeks after Hamas's outrage in southern Israel. Israel. What is the mood Uh, of the Israeli people people as 360,000 Israeli army reservists have been called up and it looks like the nation is about to go into Gaza? Thanks for having me and thanks uh, Dr. Harub also uh, for being here too. On the one hand, there's a lot of apprehension because we would anticipate that ground fighting means more soldiers being exposed to risk. But on the other hand, there's a tremendous and unusual consensus and unity. Um, Israel is a parliamentary democracy and can be pretty fractious. So we have a large number of perspectives, all of which are represented, some by smaller parties. And in the last three years, I think we had five elections and the current coalition came together by some unusual means. And then we had 
quite a divided polity for about the last nine months with some extremely contentious arguments about our judicial and constitutional structure. And all that's basically been forgotten. I'm sure there's people that would disagree with the way I'm describing it, but I think probably three quarters or more of the Israeli public agrees that we need to act strongly, that the most important priority is not only to defend from further Hamas activity, but to remove the ability for Hamas to continue to do this. So what kind of a military action in Gaza does that look like? I, first of all, I don't know, and I don't think people have discussed that very broadly. After, for example, three Israeli teenagers were kidnapped in 2014, we had a military action to try to retrieve them. And so I think everyone's expecting the scale of it to have to be more serious than that, for example. Another thing that we're very concerned about is whether or not Hezbollah will choose to use this as an opportunity to attack in northern Israel. We have almost 30 towns, I think, that are within a few kilometers of the Lebanese border that have been evacuated preemptively. Those are more citizens. So not only citizens living around the Gaza Strip have come to the middle of Israel, but we've also cleared out several towns to the north. I, Dr. Harub, lives in, in Hebron, which is not far in front overlooking Bethlehem. And we have concerns that there's also the potential for violent activity from the West Bank, which where both he and I live, even in the same parts. And so that means that even above the number of soldiers who are required for operating in Gaza, that we basically are concerned about a couple of other fronts that could potentially be opened. Adam, I just wanted to just quickly jump in because you've gone on to a few issues which I did want to raise. But just so we have a, a kind of a sweep of current Israeli mood in terms of politics before we come on to, let's say, Biden's visit or Hezbollah potentially opening a second front, is it fairly safe to say that some of the internal rankering which we've heard within the Likud party in terms of Netanyahu's leadership and war leadership has been put to one side because of the war cabinet, that Israelis have confidence in the war cabinet that not Netanyahu is going to have his hands on the military tiller? I would say that the military is a highly trusted institution that most of Israeli society participates in because we have compulsory service and very highly value continued service. So even though it's not perfect and there's a lot of disappointment in the military and intelligence service that this attack could have happened, I don't think that there's many people that say we should have someone else running the military in particular. There's tremendous disappointment with Netanyahu from many quarters, but we're also only two weeks after the attack and we haven't won, we haven't moved to the next stage of whatever the, the military response is going to, to be. To give an example of what that national mood is, you know, we're still thinking of 200 identified captives. And so the Tel Aviv Museum put out in their large square in front of their the museum, a table with 200, set, a set table for Shabbat with 200 seats missing of people who wouldn't be there. And so everyone is more focused on the sort of the task at hand and the immediate things in front of us. It leads a party that has about half of the, so let's call it 25 or a little more than 25% of seats 
and he has a number of parties to his right, and, and that's the basis of his coalition. I think that his defense secretary is thought of as a consensus figure in the defense establishment. And then the former, a former chief of the general staff, who is the head of the centrist party, joined this war cabinet. And so I don't think that anyone, I'd say, it's hard to say anyone, anyone in the middle 60 or 70% of the Israeli public is concerned that Netanyahu would either be incompetent or overly political in one way or another. And I just don't think that's necessarily a thing. I'm sure there's, you can find someone that'll be worried about that. But I think that there's a strong degree of trust that the military will operate as it's supposed to, and that we're not at the point that we need to talk about. I think Abraham Lincoln said, changing the horse in midstream. So even though I, for example, was a decided to opponent of Netanyahu and and his domestic policies and voted for other parties, I don't think the guy needs to stop being prime minister until we've reached more stable equilibrium in the war. Last question uh, to you, Adam, before um, I go. And I know uh, Daniel wants to uh, make a point and then we'll come back to Dr. Haru. How important was President Biden's visit this week, not only has he given unequivocal support to Israel, but he turned up. How important uh, symbolically has that visit been? It was a major shot in the arm for us for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's uh, extremely encouraging. I don't remember a time that foreign heads of state came uh, in the middle of of the of, of a crisis like this. This is a tough statement to substantiate what I'm about to say, but many people in Israel feel like we get the short end of the stick in media and public relations and inter- international relations all the time, no matter what. And so it's very unusual that we would have not only President Biden, not only Prime Minister Sunak, but so many uh, people arriving and, and positive messages of support. So that's been very encouraging. I personally am also very encouraged by a trend. When we talk about the Palestinian people, there's different groups of them. They think different things and they have different outlooks. And so about 20% of the citizens of Israel are Israeli Arabs and they vote in Israeli elections and they have prominent roles in society. And there are many times in which they are opposed to what we call bigger war and peace or conflict issues. And, and that's another thing I think that's been very gratifying is how many of them and for how many different reasons have have rallied to the Israeli side rather than saying that there's a broader conflict or we're not caring about Arab and Palestinian citizens. So I think that's another very interesting angle. I don't, I don't know as daily if anybody sees his Facebook videos, right? There, he would be a great example of this. And I think that's an interesting perspective to see is how much, along with foreign dignitaries, that how much Israeli citizen Arabs have uh, rallied to, around the flag, so to speak. Quickly, before I go on to Daniel and then Piotr, this is a recording of the podcast. Mid-Atlantic can be found on any decent podcatcher. We primarily look at US and UK news compared and contrasted uh, twice weekly, but we do deep dives into geopolitics outside of the special relationship between the US and the UK. And this is one of those episodes. Daniel, you've got your hand up. Yeah, I wanted to ask a couple of clarifying questions to Dr. Ibrahim here. Okay, one, considering the Palestinian population has increased every year since 1948, the genocide you cite, is it 
a consistent genocide? Or are you particularly saying the genocide has started, let's say, October 8th of two weeks ago? Two, you made the claim that Israel was lying about what happened in the first hours of, wh- of what went down. So that would be the, that, that to be the October 7th attack. So I would like to know what exactly you see as Israeli propaganda around that. To me, we're talking about people paragliding into a music festival, killing people, raping people on top of the fro- near the bodies of their dead friends before killing them, burning babies and women and children alive, taking hostages and that. So I want to know what part of that you think is uh, Israeli propaganda and what part you think actually did happen and if you think that's good or bad or neutral. And three, in future, when you cite war crimes, can you, I'm going to hold you to the standard because you are a professor. Can you please cite what exactly the war crime is? Action A is a war crime because B, under international law, which is X. Okay, Mr. Daniel. I respect your perspective and you have to right to defend your point of view. I, I will answer your last question. What uh, a war crime is, uh, in a simple definition, a war crime is the violation of laws of war that gives rise to individual criminal responsibility for action, such as killing civilians or killing prisoners of war, torture, taking hostage, or destroying civilian property. So as you see on the media outlets that more than 3,500 Palestinians were killed in the last few days of this war. And this is backed, not assumption. The second question, you talk about the Israeli propaganda. And as a communication specialist, I said, that the Israeli propaganda tried to achieve to narrative control by dehumanizing victims to justify the genocide against Palestinians by playing the victim role. And this is, can be achieved by repeating lies until they become truth. We talk about promoting the narrative on social media and online influence by delegitimizing critics of Israeli policies and by selective use of information. So this is about complexity and confusion. I think that you should differentiate between reality and media. As I said, that there is a big difference between what media and what on reality. And you just check the numbers of Palestinian people who were killed in this war. More than 3,500 Palestinians. And you compare the, uh, the numbers between 2008 and 2023, uh, how many Palestinians were killed and how many Israelis were killed. So you see the difference, that there is a big difference between the number of this in both sides. To, to be fair, though, uh, Dr. Harub, you haven't exactly answered Daniel's question about specific war crimes. Uh, what you've talked about is media and, and perception. Professor Haroub, what has been the response of Arab leaders in the region? Can they be doing more to aid the Palestinians' cause? Can they be helping to remind the world very clearly that Hamas is not all of the Palestinian people? What are Arab leaders doing and saying to help the Palestinians in their current crisis? I think Arab leaders are able to promote solidarity with Palestinian people. It's not about just gaining alliances 
with other countries. It's about the Palestinian lives. It's about this, I said, this genocide against Palestinian. And you, you asked me, Mr. Daniel asked me what a war crime. I told him war crime is a violation of laws of the war. By killing... But you haven't cited which specific law and the things you've been saying, one, are evasive and two, outright wrong. Oh, okay, uh, violation is by killing civilians, by destroying civilian property. I, I told you more than 3,500 okay, Palestinians so were what, killed. What Hamas did on October 7th a war crime. Is the, are the actions of Hamas on October the 7th a war crime? I, I, I told you that as our president said, that Hamas action doesn't represent all the Palestinian yes, voices. or no. In your personal opinion, is what Hamas did on October the 7th to you a war crime? As a Palestinian, I just think about my rights, about my 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 state. My I don't think about such complicated politics and about the conflict. Would you say your right as a Palestinian is to paraglide into a music festival and kill everyone there? Is that what you consider Palestinian? No, it's, right? Daniel, it's, draw it's it back about, a bit, buddy. It's, it it's about two-state solution, that if we have two-state solution, we will live in peace and there will not be no conflict between Israeli and Palestinian. This is the point. Professor Haroub, you did come on the show last week and I thought you you did at times to articulate the viewpoint of the Palestinian people. You did concede last week that what Hamas did was an outrage and I think it would behove you to say clearly and unequivocally that was a crime against humanity, what Hamas did. So I'm going to give you the opportunity, uh, just equivocally, just say that what they did was a crime. Oh, and in the state of war, it was a war crime. These were innocent civilians who were fundamentally minding their own business and they were gunned down by Hamas. We, we can argue about the amount of people that, that, that that were killed, but surely you can just say that what they did was unconscionable and then we can at least agree on that and then move on to another question. Okay, okay, Mr. Brown, you should know that I am in not position to condemn Hamas action or not, or just uh, to, to say that this is a war crime or not. I, I'm, I care about my people, about Palestinian people who are killed and uh, the conflict between Hamas and Israeli uh, forces, the hysterical background of, about this conflict in 2006, 2008, 2021, and so, so on. So you should ask me, what should we do to stop this war? This is the question now. It's not about to condemn Hamas or condemn the Israeli forces. Or I, I'm just say, talking about the genocide now conducting against the Palestinian. Every but, day they, they it, kill it, it, Palestinian but, but, people, but, civilian Palestinian but, but people. But Professor, if we can't just agree that what Hamas did was an outrage against humanity, innocent civilians, these were not people in combat fatigues, these were not people representing the Israeli state holding holding arms, these were people at a music festival, if we can't agree on that, I think it massively weakens the sympathy 
that many people throughout the world have for the Palestinian people. And also the framing of this room fundamentally is for us to talk about the last week. So whilst I agree with you that there needs to be a just and equitable peace for the Palestinian people, which should be some level of a two-state solution so Palestinians can have their own state, that's beyond the purview of this room. Fundamentally, it's to review the event of the last week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You did mention the potential widening of this conflict into two fronts. How real and present is that danger that Hezbollah won't just be launching a few rockets, but could have a concerted campaign against northern Israel? I could tell you a lot of things about life in Israel. I could tell you a couple of things about Hamas and a couple of things about Hezbollah. But um, it's, it would be very difficult to be an expert on all of these at the same time. They have accumulated a stockpile of hundreds of thousands of weapons, they, of, of, of long-range missiles, medium and long-range. They have been training an army for 30 years or more. And at the end of the day, are they doing that for no purpose? Or are they doing that because they eventually believe that they're going to fight an extended campaign against Israel? That's the first thing is war is something they want when we don't know when or how much. The second thing is Hezbollah is a local entity that is, is and isn't the government in about half of Lebanon, but it's also a puppet entity that is largely influenced and controlled both by Syria and Iran. And some of the background of whatever Hezbollah is going to do, which I'm not you know, qualified to reach a conclusion about, but it also needs to be viewed in light of the, the concerns that, that uh, Syria and Iran would have. So maybe Hezbollah would say that they're not concerned and don't think they have enough to lose if they start a fighting Israel at a time that Israel's already focused on and has resources being spent on in, in, in Aza against Hamas. But Syria has something to lose and Iran uh, has something to lose. And so if you work backwards from what the players are doing, 
My impression was that the U.S. bringing two aircraft carriers to the Eastern Mediterranean is a way of applying pressure primarily against Syria, and that Syria would then exercise its influence on, on Hezbollah not to attack us. Now, does that make it, is that pressure effective? And are, does Hezbollah have incremental actions that are hostile? Do they think that there's a level of, of attack by missiles or bombing that they can carry off that doesn't provoke a U.S. response or that doesn't provoke an Israeli response above what they're willing to, to sustain? That'd be getting into some very detailed stuff, and I don't think I'm qualified to answer. And then another thing that's an interesting way to think about all this is it it's, seems clear to me that Hamas grossly miscalculated in carrying off this these horrible attacks, what the Israeli response would be. So it's also possible that Hezbollah will miscalculate, right? That they'll say, oh, a two-front war would be too much for us, and maybe they'll get that wrong. I think that those, I've outlined some of the categories for thinking about it and how we would discuss it here in Israel. I hope I haven't reached a firm conclusion on anything because that would be way above my, my pay grade as a private citizen. One more question for you before we go back to Professor Ibrahim. Far-right leader has admitted that the government failed to protect civilians from the Hamas outrage a couple of weeks ago now. Is there still a lot of soul-searching going on in Israel about how Hamas could actually run amok in southern Israel for such a protracted amount of time? I think the public discourse and the private discourse in Israel is much more fact-based and gets into kind of low-level conflict. If anybody's ever looked with Israelis and you're surprised that people in a meeting would, would raise their voices and then they walk out of the meeting and they're friends again. So that those same cultural features make it easier to admit shortcomings in public on by leaders. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the Israeli public is probably a little more fluid in between political parties and who to support and very willing to be responsive to facts. So from the perspective of an individual leader, for the most part, there's not a lot to be gained by saying it wasn't our fault. And I think we have a culture that values self-criticism and improvement and refiguring things out. So it's glaringly obvious to literally every single person in the country that the security and intelligence establishment and the people running them horribly failed, right? That's as plain as the nose in your face. So the question is what to do about it. And then it's slightly less consensus, but still broadly consensus that, okay, we don't have time to change that horse in midstream. The chief of the general staff has admitted this was a failure. The head of the Israeli Shin Bet security service, I believe the head of the Mossad too, have all said, this was a horrible failure. This is my fault. And that's not unusual in Israel. And failing to do that on their part would be, would make them seem obstinate would make them seem out of touch. And that's the kind of thing that, that we would have rejected them against them. So on Smotrich's part, it was correct that he did that. And I think a number of other political leaders have as well. But it was so from us, it would almost be strange if someone didn't do that. What I, I wouldn't call it soul searching in the sense that somebody has long dark nights of the soul and spends a lot of time wondering how could I have ever 
done this. It's rather like the the Hebrew slang is short for it would be tachlis. We have to get extremely practical right away. And so the first step to doing that and in being pragmatic is to come to terms with your shortcomings. So I, that's how I would locate those statements. Thank you, Adam. Professor Ibrahim. Israel has detained some 120 Palestinians in Ramallah and Nablus and also Hebron. Have you noticed an increased uh, Israeli security presence on the West Bank this week? Okay, so, so you asked me about the situation in West Bank. I'm very sad about the difficult situation in West Bank because what happens in Gaza, in Gaza affects the Palestinian people in West Bank. And the fact is that this war has had a devastating impact on the civilian population in both Gaza Strip and West Bank, leading to the loss of lives, widespread destruction, and a real humanitarian crisis. So the situation in Gaza remains highly significant concern for the international community, as I said. And this is, should be achieved and this is, should be, there should be a resolution for both Gaza Strip and West Bank. And this resolution can be achieved by the Israeli government well by implementing the two-state solution. Passions were inflamed because of the bombing of the hospital, regardless of the source of the missile, Professor Ibrahim. Uh, we saw demonstrations all over the West Bank. Does Fatah have the confidence of average Palestinians on the West Bank? Uh, so, sorry, you talk about Mahmadani hospital genocide uh, that happened five days ago. and uh, It was more about the reaction to it. We saw demonstrations in Ramallah. We saw demonstrations all over the, the West Bank. People were understandably upset. Palestinians were understandably upset. Do, does the average Palestinian on the West Bank, which is where you are, do they still do they have confidence in Fatah and the Palestinian Authority that they will be able to represent the interests of the wider Palestinian people, uh, which includes those in Gaza, adequately? Okay, you should f first understand the p Palestinian uh, political system. We have PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. We have the Palestinian Authority and we have the political parties. So you asked me about the future of the political parties in, in, in Palestine. I think that, I think that there will be shifts in power and there will be a new generation of Palestinian people who, who want to their own state. They want a two-state solution to be implemented and we, we should build our infrastructure, our institution, our universities, our hospitals. And this is the responsibility of the international community to promote Israel and to make Israel implement two-state solution. And this is easily can be achieved by the will of the Israeli government. And so... Professor Ibrahim, are you implicitly saying then that the average Palestinian doesn't have confidence in the in Fatah and its aged leadership, and that it's basically a time for change? We, we, Fatah 
is one political party among other political parties that represent PLO. We are confident of PLO to guide the Palestinian project uh, for uh, a Palestinian state in West Bank and East Jerusalem. And whether Fatah or other political party represent the Palestinian people, we, we all dream of the Palestinian state. And this is, I think, the point that uh, I think the future of political system in Palestine will be changed according to the result of this war. Daniel, over to you, sir. Yeah, I want to, okay, one, make a comment. Of, I, I'm not really comfortable with legitimizing the anger around the hospital, saying it's legitimately upset when it was, we now have evidence it was a PIJ rocket that landed in the car park of a hospital and killed maybe 10 to 50 people, not the 500 or 1,000 that was reported by Hamas. I would ask this question, are we still taking everything Hamas says at face value? And two, when we talk about the two-state solution, a lot of us feel gaslit here because the Israeli government has offered many peace proposals, many two-state solutions, many land swaps. All of them have been rejected by the Palestinian leadership. And there has been never been a determination at any level from Palestinian leadership to actually advocate for a two-state solution. So when we talk about this, and oh, it's, we have to put pressure on the Israelis to do it. They've been doing it. There's a two-state solution that's been on the table for the last 78 years. And oh, it's been okay, Danny, can I ask you one question about this point? How, how many Israeli settlers now in West Bank? You talk about two-state solution, and you said that Israeli government offered opportunity to Palestinian people to accept two-state solution. My question is now, How many Israeli settlers now in West Bank and East Jerusalem? Can you answer so, yeah, this question? I'll, I'll answer the settler question. I will happily answer this question, and thank you for asking it. One of the propaganda points is that the settlers, so-called Jews living in houses, is the reason why there is so much conflict. This is disproven by Gaza. In 2005, the Israeli army physically removed every single Jew from Gaza, made it youth and Rhine, gave all the infrastructure to Gaza, made it a state without them asking, gave them a state. What do they do? They burn that infrastructure, voted for Hamas, where you can read Hamas's chart. I put in the nest and what they believe. And then Hamas, after a brutal civil war, declared war in Israel and started launching rockets. So clearly their problem was not, quote unquote, settlers. You say you live in Hebron. Do you at least acknowledge what happened in Hebron in 1929, a historically Jewish city, where the bodies of the founders of Judaism, the founding fathers and mothers, Abraham, Isaac, You name it, they're buried there. Is it, in your sense, a crime that Jews live in Hebron? And furthermore, is are you making the claim that because Jews are living in houses near you, this justifies genocide? And I will ask everyone in the audience, in your personal opinion, how close does a Jew have to live to you for you to justify mass murder? That is the question I put to you. Because this settlement argument... All right, Daniel... Daniel, um, for the, the, the purview of, uh, as, I, as I did say to uh, Professor Ibrahim before, is really to understand the tenor of both sides of the divide uh, this week. If we start to go down the road of talking about 1929, etc., we're going to be here all, all day. As valid as that might be, it's beyond the purview of this podcast. But Piotr... So we are uh, just at the end of the second week of Hamas at war with Israel. 
with about 3,000 Palestinians who have been collateral damage in this war and over 1,500 Israelis dead also. Uh, I'd like to thank Adam Block for being with us, uh, a stand-in for our scheduled guest, Yehuda Mursky. Um, Adam, quickly tell people where they can find you on social media if they want to follow you after they've listened to the podcast. I would feel so sorry for anybody that wants to follow me on social media. There's many more talented, more articulate folks. And Yehuda Mursky is, you know, an extremely insightful guy. And he's written a couple of wonderful books. So I would follow Yehuda Mursky first. Uh, if for some reason you still want to know where I am, my Twitter handle is AdamB1438. But most of the time, I'm probably talking about stocks there. I appreciate very much y'all's efforts to do this and to ask me questions and to try to learn more. And I hope that, that I've had something to offer. And like I said, I really appreciate everyone's paying attention. It's such a difficult time for us. But the more everybody else understands and investigates, I have confidence that y'all will all reach great conclusions. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today, Adam. Professor Ibrahim Haroub, where can people catch up with you on social media? Yeah, they can follow me on Facebook. My name is Ibrahim Haroub. And they just write Ibrahim and Ibrahim Haroub and they can follow me. Uh, thank you. Uh, we say this at the end of, of every Mid-Atlantic podcast. Mid-Atlantic fundamentally is one of our core aims is to be in what we call the Commonwealth, the space where people from opposing views, ideologies, can at least agree to disagree by talking, by understanding, by empathising with each other's point of view. Without that, we don't have a democracy, we don't have dialogue, and fundamentally what we have is war and, and conflict. Oh, and Veron, can I say last thing, one thing? Go on. I, I, I'm sorry, just I want to say that I don't justify the murder of any civilian in both sides. And this is a difficult time and we should collaborate to, to overcome this difficult time and we should feel uh, of other people the suffering of all people in this era. This is my point. Thank you, Professor Haroub. It's important that at its core in any conflict that we recognize the humanity in each other. If we start from that fundamental building block, it doesn't mean that we can overcome adversity and disagreements and outrageous acts of terrorism easily, but it gives us a fighting chance if we can recognize the humanity in us all and the fact that security is at the root of what we all demand as citizens of planet Earth. I don't understand incredibly kumbayarish here, but peace and security come first, and then with that, hopefully some level of, of prosperity. And uh, the Palestinian people, a, a proud people, are stateless. And we, we cannot and we shouldn't forget that fact. Their statelessness is one of the reasons why the proud people of Israel find themselves in a constant state of readiness for war. They find themselves surrounded by implacable enemies, which historically the state of Israel has slowly been coming to a concord with. Israel is a beautiful country. It's a country which I'm proud to say that, I, that, I, that I've been to. 
And as I said in the first podcast just last week, I have two friends who've been called up into the IDF reserves, Natan and Rowan, two, two gentlemen who showed me a, a fantastic time some 10 years ago when I visited Israel and took me to a music concert in Galilee. On that note, folks, you can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com. That's R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. And I think what we will do is continue these conversations, at least for the foreseeable future, once a week, where we test the temperature of Palestinians who are on the ground and also with people that do live in Israel. It's a way of us understanding Again, the humanity and real people, how they're living their lives away just from the headlines. The headlines are incredibly important. They shape the narrative of, of what we see and what we believe on our TV screens. But there are real people behind those narratives too. I've been Royful Brown. This has been Mid-Atlantic. Don't forget, folks, a writer's a five-star review on, on any podcatcher, ideally Apple Podcasts. That'll be great. That'll be fantastic. You can give me a follow. I'm going to be doing more things on Twitter. I'm quite simply at Royfield on Twitter. That's been me, Royfield Brown. Take care. Look after yourselves. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.